Welcome back to Brubble, a podcast exploring young voices and perspectives within the Brussels bubble. This is part two of our September in Review episode. In our previous episode, we focused on energy and Ukraine. In this episode, we'll be looking at the topics of the Italian elections, rule of law, and the lingering question of, of Europe's role and identity as potentially a geopolitical actor. Stay tuned to listen to all of this, and if you want, and if you haven't heard part one yet, please go ahead and do so. Thanks. And I think this is a good place to leave off the Ukraine subject, which we dwelled on a bit longer than I anticipated, but I think it's, you know, worthy to dwell on that subject and move on to a lighter topic, the recent election of a self-proclaimed neo-fascist in Europe. Um, how are we feeling about the Italian elections, if that's not too big of an about turn here? I'm, I'm showing a lot of solidarity to my fr- Italian friends in general, but I think that... I don't think it's as severe as many people think, mm. quite honestly. I think that it's um, we are currently looking at the most right-wing government that we have seen, arguably, according to some, since World War II in Italy. But I think that the constraints of the uh, European system, as well as the fact that a lot of the votes for Meloni will have been some protest votes, and not everything went from for Fratelli d'Italia. A lot of it was also for her coalition partners. I think I would even focus more on the one of the hopeful results of this, which was that the pro-European Azione Viva coalition came out of nowhere and won 8% of the vote, mm. which was a very good result for a pro-European party that was distinctly pro-European in an incredibly hostile election environment that targeted the European Union as an overbearing nanny, which needed to get off your Italy's back and allow Italy to find its future. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I know Italy is not all of our, you know, prime areas of focus, but are we concerned about this right-wing trend sweeping across Europe? Do you think this will impede European collaboration, especially as rumors of a Mussolini being elected to European Parliament are running rampant? I, I think that's uh, a little bit uh, far-fetched. <laughs> um, I'm glad you do, I, <laughs> just to comfort us all. <laughs> I... First of all, let's let's be let's be honest with with mm-hmm. uh, with each other a little bit. Whether we agree or not with a particular political party and in effect with a particular government does not mean that it does not have a mandate. Yes. Now, uh, Meloni's party won at all demographics. Clear mandate. Clear mandate, especially for the context of. Italian politics, which is extremely difficult uh, for a single party to gain uh, a massive uh, a massive lead over its uh, its competitors, um, I we must differentiate between the election period and then when it comes comes time to govern. And I think, insofar, um, every government with an extremely strong mandate deserves um, the benefit of the doubt, if you may. Um, because they they were elected, this is what people uh, this is what people chose. Now um, I have a graph here that unfortunately is just on my phone, but I will share it with you after, and maybe you can uh, show yeah, it on the screen, on the screen. Uh, yeah. uh, right now. Um, so massive chunk of five star uh, voters that voted in the previous elections abstained. Mm. Now the the turn turnout in Italian elections much lower 
than before. That is already one cause for concern because we have a democratic, not just a democratic right, we have a democratic privilege. So we must always exercise it. And irrespective of what people vote, yeah. I believe that they must always go out and vote because it is their right, because people have died to defend that right and people are in Ukraine dying to defend theirs. Um, at the same time, the, the center-left remained the same. Meloni's party seized more than half of the votes of Lega, and this will be very, very important uh, when you start considering the dynamics of the coalition. Because we have seen dynamic, uh, strong coalitions in Italy over the past few years. Whether they've been able to make it work is a totally different story. And even though Meloni, to an extent, kept quite quiet during the, the election period, it remains to be seen because uh, as her junior coalition partners, she has uh, Salvini and Berlusconi. These are two individuals that do not like being junior in, uh, in anything, I remind you. So um, we also have to see what the dynamics are going, going to be in, uh, in the coalition. Um, and again, I think uh, Italy being the third largest economy in Europe and being an extremely, extremely vital, fu foundational part of uh, the European Union and Europe, such a historic um, country, I think um, they people understand, and politicians as well, that you can't go at it alone. Yeah. On issues like migration, on issues such as energy, um, even the recovery and resilience plan, I, I remind you that the biggest plan with around 200 billion uh, is dedicated to, to Italy. We must, in everyone must, must do their part to ensure that uh, these funds, these historic steps that we took are implemented. And I think there is enough maturity and there is understanding and, and leadership and competence to see these things. Now, whether or not they, might, they materialize, I'm, I'm uh, no guru. Um, I, I cannot say. Uh, but uh, at the same time, we need to see how things uh, go. But I think uh, what you said in the beginning is a little bit far-fetched. I, I didn't make the news by itself. Yeah, no, I get yeah, that. Yeah, no, no, but I, I, I tend to, to agree with Nikos. Actually, uh, first we should not forget that she, Meloni actually was part of the youth neo-fascist movement. So I, I, I believe that this, this count, um, kind of resonates in people's head, at least on media, and actually makes it a little bit of a turmoil. That's why I try to understand and go to the source, actually, what their platform advocates for. And to be honest, like... Um, I didn't found it like very very far away from what is usually practiced all over Europe for right-wing countries, for right-wing parties. Like for instance, economically they are pretty much um, conservative-wise, like the low tax burdens for companies, uh, cut on deficits, of course, cut on on uh, welfare policies, and also they are pretty much keen on structural reforms. So they are pretty much in line with what the European Union wants, especially under the the reforms, of course, because. As you mentioned, there is the historical 200 billion um, money from the RRF to be to be used. Again, like okay, they are a little bit of eurosceptic. That's true, but they never advocate to leave the European Union yeah. nor the euro. It's true. So they have this point. Also, they have a more nationalist approach to the economy. Of course, like they are against globalization, but nowadays 
it's kind of a trend, not even for the right wings, but also for the left wings to be against, uh, or some part of the left to be uh, against globalization. She wants to spend more money in supporting Italian businesses. Okay, let's see how this will square with the internal market rules. And uh, she wants ban to ban foreign buyings of Italian companies, which is also a little bit far-fetched, but let's see how it plays out. Um, and perhaps their most controversial topic should be like the social uh, part of it, which is like they yeah. are against the LGBT uh, lobby and the ideology of gender. Mm. But nonetheless, they have already said that they are going to keep same-sex marriage, the civil one, and also they are not going to touch in the existing abortion laws. So, and also okay, there is a little... Just let mm -hmm. allow me just to, to terminate, to end on this. And perhaps the most controversial uh, policy that they have is actually relating to, um, to immigration. Mm -hmm. But on that we can, in a way, understand, because Italy has been a forefront and in some way abandoned in terms of immigration policy all over the European Union. And by this, uh, they actually want to propose a naval blockade to parts of North Africa. So it's a little bit of a far-fetched measure. But this is like, in overall, it doesn't seem that... Uh, that extremist, or how they want to portray it. But yeah, mm -hmm. please. Portuguese are always optimists in the EU. So. Yeah, we try, we try, we try. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The one thing that you said there about the fact that they've said that they're going to protect all these social rights in, in general, I I see where you're coming from at that point. I know a lot of people have been saying this to me as well in general, but I'm concerned about whether that was not just uh, political messaging just to get them through the election like you know Meloni saying yeah we're not going to touch abortion mm -hmm. we're not going to touch anything you know I'm a woman I don't want to touch abortion yeah. despite the fact that she believes it's a negative and we should also remember that uh, the current president of the European Parliament Metzola was also against abortion for a long period of time and here she is doing a relatively good job of defending it as a European right especially in light of what happened in the US but I'm almost concerned that because of the fact that they're creating this new uh, grouping that's, in my opinion, going to replace the ECR starting in 2024 when the elections swing by, whether or not there's not this the beginnings of the Orban playbook where there's lots of, you know, we're not going to touch all this kind of stuff, we're not going to stop all this stuff, but we are going to... You know, we'll go for a referendum and we'll let this messaging go through the public and then these people can... You know, decide what happens. Then Orban, for example, holds ref a public consultation. It says, we don't like this because X, Y, Z. Then Orban goes to the council or whatever and says, my people said I don't, they don't like this. We're getting rid of it. And it's this kind of thing that I'm worried that Meloni may start taking leaves out of or pages out of Orban's book in order to circumvent her own statements recently, which I think is the bigger risk rather than an outright going, never mind abortion, you will have to have children. Yeah. To this and uh, and also to touch a little bit because you said it yourself and one of the topics of discussion here is Hungary and the rule of law. Um, being part of the family of countries which is the European Union, there are some some values and rules that we all need to abide by. Do uh, we? Sorry. But do we? Does everybody? Yeah, we do. We do. I think uh, we. Oh. We I, I stick do. by you on this. I will just say, I've got to split the table here. Like, uh, <laughs> um, there is the European acquis. There is the, the Treaty of the EU, the Treaty of the Functioning of the EU. There's all the secondary case law uh, produced over years and years and decades of, um, of cases 
uh, at the Court of Justice of the European Union. Um, there are some rights which I believe are are fundamental in the, in this uh, day and age, and uh, those rights need and I believe will be uh, uh, will be protected, and um, I consider abortion to be one of them. Yes, but if it was the case that everybody in the EU stood by the acquis and uh, European rights and values, then why has the Commission been trying to uh, trigger Article 7 in various ways against uh, member states who have not been following these and who have been protected by other states not doing so? Well, I guess uh, we will find out because uh, there have been some uh, developments. Um, I, I oftentimes ask myself that as a as an uh, EU uh, citizen, um, just like as uh, as someone that liked to read a lot of news and uh, to be basically a news junkie and an EU nerd. Um, I don't think anymore um, we as Europeans are at the level where we tolerate, uh, let's just say, bullies, mm. um, especially now at the face of of a bully which is uh, trying to outright uh, bully uh, another country into into submission because um, we, we must always stand up uh, and I'm not talking about anyone specifically here but we must always stand up uh, to 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 these bullies and to for the values and uh, and the rights that we believe are ours and we we deserve them because again I remind you that uh, when you choose to be a member of this family of nations, um, you choose some. Uh, y y there is a trade-off. There's th there is a relationship that you develop, uh, n not just, for instance, between Brussels and uh, uh, and a c a capital city like uh, um, with with the other nations as well. You develop uh, long-lasting. Uh, of friendships, uh, diplomacy, and so on, and so forth. Um, you cannot just play by by your own rulebook. Whether some people want to play by their own rulebook, that's a different story. Whether they will succeed in the long run, that's also uh, a different uh, story. To to answer your question, the the commission is taking steps, proposing to. Um, to the council on particular uh, infringements in uh, in Hungary. Um, at the same time, let us not forget that there are some limitations of um, of the EU's power. Not because, let's say, the Commission or the Parliament would not want it, but because sometimes the member states would like to keep some of the uh, be they competencies, be they decisions, to themselves. So. It's people really need to consider who, who isn't or is doing something. But we have to consider who is and who isn't doing things when yeah. we claim that everybody plays by the European rulebook, which no, is not the case. No, 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 no. I and didn't say everybody plays by the European rulebook. I said you there really is know. a European Yes, and uh, you said that we all play by that it. That we need to, yes, to we need play to. by. And, of course, when there yes, are we infringements, don't. we take decisions to overcome them. When we can which is why a lot of people with the Kofoya platform wanted to get rid of unanimity, because this is what's been stopping Article 7 for six, seven years now with the uh, 
let's say, the right-slash-far-right alliance between uh, Orban and the uh, governing bodies in Poland. Because, again, everybody does make the trade-off when they join the EU to have this, uh, we have to work together, we have to come together and change our things. But the governments that are running around now aren't necessarily the same ones that uh, push their countries and led their countries into the EU. No doubt. And that leads to uh, issues in the council. Being a bully always leads to isolation. Not always. Uh, I mean, I'm hoping that the commission will pull through, and, and especially, I was going to touch on this, but I think we did it to a sufficient extent already with the, uh, with, the, uh, uh, with the proposed cuts to the EU money flowing into Hungary. So hopefully the bullies will get a bit of poking into hopefully. them. I think this wraps up a bit of the main things I want to talk about, but I mean, going around the table really quick, did we miss anything? Is there anything, any themes we should have talked about? And I know there's one which might be absent to our British friends in, from this conversation here, um, but... <laughs> oh, we, can, uh, we can overlook that. Yeah, as, uh, as, as a former resident in a British colony... I can't. Uh, if, if we are, if we are <laughs> oh, talking about... Uh, here, sorry. No, 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 <laughs> you just opened Pandora's the box. So, the state of the union? Is uh, that what we're talking about? No, oh, I think the, the, the UK, no? Yeah, the death yeah, of a certain okay. monarch, yeah. the extension of a, a new prime, uh, prime minister in that area. I actually yeah. have another topic that yeah. uh, Go for it. I would prefer uh, <laughs> I talk about. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> for making it easy. I understood that uh, we needed an intervention. Um, actually, I want to talk about uh, an issue that oftentimes is overlooked, especially in... Uh, um, in circles uh, in uh, in Brussels, and I'm more talking socially as opposed to, to yeah. politically. Um, Turkey. Hmm. Turkey, hmm. every day, every single day, makes threats, but n- not just latent threats. Makes uh, clear uh, connections to genocide, uh, to systematic killing um, of two EU member states, Greece and Cyprus, uh, but also, of course, they they are pretty much in conflict with uh, with Syria. There is the constant tensions with uh, the Kurds inside Turkey. And I think, as Europeans, we are simply not talking about it enough. We are not talking about it yeah. because at some points in time it was convenient to make certain agreements because it suited us. But right now, uh, I, I think that we need, we really need to talk about this, especially in the face of what's happening in, uh, in Russia. I understand fully, I'm, uh, I'm not taking a blind nationalistic position here. Uh, Turkey is a very important international uh, partner and country, no less, uh, because it was uh, extremely important, for instance, for the grain deal. With, uh, with Ukraine and with the UN and mediating um, and in the Black Sea as well. Uh, at the same time, that does not uh, alleviate the responsibilities and obligations that it has internationally. I've heard a lot of, um, a lot of analysts, quote-unquote, uh, say that uh, ah, the elections are coming up in 2023, so he needs to rile up his nationalistic base and so on and so forth. Let me ask you something, and to the viewers. What happens after the elections? Does all of a sudden he turn into a, uh, a little sunflower and he starts spreading uh, love and freedom? Unfortunately, when, when you ask for blood, 
people will want blood. Mm. Are there any thoughts on this around the table? Because I didn't have no, this in it's my always, notes. You know, it's always an interesting topic for discussion. And uh, it blends a little bit with the um, State of the Union speech, especially when the von der Leyen speaks about the need for us to restructure our foreign policy and uh, rethink our foreign policy, especially uh, working, of course, with like-minded countries, but also looking to our neighborhood, you know, of course. On our southern neighborhood, there is always Turkey with the problems that you all, that you mentioned. I would just like to uh, launch this into the discussion, which is um, the price of uh, of food and goods, especially the cereal ones, and uh, the potential impact that actually mm. that can have in the the outer world or in the many regions of the world. Because, for instance, just for people to get a notion on that. Uh, many African countries, and not only African countries, are dependent from 50% to 100% of the grain that is exported either from Russia or from Ukraine, mm. yeah. and also in other parts of the world. And uh, if to this uh, energy crisis, economic uh, recession, um, we join this, this food problem, this will spike hard, especially on uh, the poorest regions, yeah. which will actually place a further burden in terms of migration into Europe. And there, again, we have Turkey as a yeah. gatekeeper. Yeah. And we have, so they are already, I think when, when the President von der Leyen is telling about the importance of dealing with our neighborhood, she's actually mentioning about this point. Mm. Yeah. And it's also interesting that, uh, again, linking to the, the Italian elections, that uh, seemingly absurd, um, absurd uh, proposal for uh, a blockade to to North Africa. It actually comes again to play into those things. You know that security that uh, yeah. they needs to be enforced. But uh, thank you for bringing the topic on Turkey. Just uh, food for thought. Yeah, and as someone who worked on Brexit for five years, mm-hmm. thank you so much for getting <laughs> us away from the UK because I've had enough. No, 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 no. So what are we gonna say? Oh look, they made another mistake and their economy collapsed. <laughs> But yeah, I was going to say the death of arguably one of the biggest deaths in her lifetime. Yes, uh, but... That's still a lighter subject, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave but, you go on your turkey point. Go but <laughs> on the point of Turkey, I think what you're saying, and what both of you are saying actually, comes to a central point that, um, I mean, I'm not here in an official capacity, of course. Please don't tell Emmanuel Macron I'm speaking in his name. But it comes to a point that we've been making as a party at the European and national level, which is that we need to have a strategically autonomous European Union and on top of this, and calling back to what Ursula von der Leyen said when she was nominated as Commission President, way back when we decided that the Spitzenkandidat was a terrible idea and we should never do it again, was that we need to have a geopolitical European Union and we need to have a geopolitical commission. And this plays into the way that we deal with things like Turkey, with food security, with how we interact with not just our neighborhood, but the wider global neighborhood and ecosystem that we're a part of. And the fact that we, as geopolitical actors, utilizing whatever tools you want, we have to, we have an obligation, at least in my view, in a very typically French liberal sense of the word, that we have an obligation to the world around us to give them the support that they need and to support the, a direction of travel for the world that is beneficial for everyone. Avoiding food crises in Africa by trying to do everything we can to negotiate in Ukraine and Russia or working through partners like Erdogan, even if it gives them more leverage, to get more grain out of these regions. 
to support Ukrainians in their fight for freedoms and their very democratic, very pro-European view. Supporting a lot of the countries that now are currently staring down a famine over the next couple of months because they simply don't have access to grains or materials that we have. And a lot of this comes through to what was mentioned in the State of the European Union speech, which we discussed on a podcast a few weeks back, was is that we have to engage in this transformation of our society in a way that it reinforces our position and makes us safer and makes us more secure, but also gives us the maneuverability to actually engage with other states and support other states when they need the help from us. Not purely out of the goodness of our heart, even though I like to think, as Nikos does, that we are good people. <laughs> and I think everybody is good people. <laughs> I'm just teasing you, don't worry. <laughs> but also because it's, it's, a, it's a useful tool against the rise of authoritarianism and far-right or far-left ideology, which tends to place us against one another and try to play us against one another, in effect, weakening our societies, whether that's at a regional, a national, a European or a global level. And I think it's something that we need to keep in mind as practitioners in the European political sphere, that we need to support this move towards a more geopolitical European Union, whatever the form, I'm not going to argue. Let's do another podcast on federalism. That would be fun. You're just planting the seeds. <laughs> Listen, okay, I, okay, I need okay. something to talk about. Because that, that, that was my follow-up. <laughs> I would actually like to ask what is a geopolitical actor for you, that, or what type of geopolitical actor actually the European Union should be. Well, well, I mean, it's but I mean, because... At I this think point, you could the same question. Yeah, no, but at, at, at <laughs> this point, and the, the focus like, uh, okay, the strategic autonomy. Um, in the industrial strategy, they say that it's a strategic autonomy, and also they want to be like, they want to be, to, uh, to promote like international trade. Yeah. So, which in some cases, it can actually be like a, a regression or tentative of regression or decoupling from globalization. But on the other side, it seems like we want the best of both worlds. So, where do we stand? Well, you know, this is and just just so, so on, on the, the end of the geopolitical side. I mean, it's very difficult to compete for us. In remember, like our discussion in the, in the NATO forum, it's very it's very difficult for us to actually compete with actors do not, that do not play by the same rule as us. Yes, of course. Especially when we do not speak on the same, uh, we do not have the same instruments, and we do not speak under one voice. Yes, of course. Imagine helping um, other countries. When they, when we try to impose them a political agenda or economical agenda, yeah. Uh, whereas we have other countries that do it not of out of the, the good interest in their hearts, of course, yeah, of course, but they do not, they do not demand from the others. I, I know the examples Last you have in your head yeah. very quickly. I'm going to try to say this as quickly as possible, but I go think ahead, we need to have ahead. another podcast just to like follow up on the... Uh, the I need to say something about China when I'm saying... Yes, of course. But just, just to clarify. I, I think it's important to know. So on China, and even on Russia, when Russia's doing its uh, little games in uh, Africa, saying, look at how we're saving you from famine, blah, blah, blah. A lot of it is all conditional which is a very big geopolitical tool. China, they don't seem to ask for anything. They're just like, yeah, we're going to invest in your infrastructure in Bulgaria or whatever. But what they do is if you actually look at the fine print, the interest rates that these countries, like uh, North Macedonia is a big example of one of the highways going through there. The interest rate is, yes, Sri Lanka in Africa, Montenegro. (laughs) Yes, it was Montenegro, not North Macedonia. The interest rate is catastrophic. I mean, to the point that a lot of these countries had to even ask for EU support because they were going to go bankrupt at a national level and the national banks couldn't actually pay to China, which is a problem. But the thing is, yes, it is a problem. But the thing is, 
Chinese gain is gaining leverage there. Yeah. Either if it is on Africa or on other parts of Asia or even inside of Europe. Yes, of Whereas course. Europe cannot make actually a stronghold on those countries. But see, we're moving in that direction. And this is why, personally, I think it's a shame that we have the roadblocks we have at the European level. And I think we're all going to agree on this. In that, because of unanimity, and un it's untypically for a French person, I'm actually against unanimity as a, mm. as a tool. It's, I think it's actually blocking us from making moves in this direction because if you have a country like Hungary who can say, yeah, but I benefit from close ties with Huawei or I can benefit from close ties with Russia, I'm going to kill this that you guys can't stop me from getting more money from the other guys. We end up with a problem where we can't actually do this. But mm. even then, we have to remember, and I'm going to dust off my uh, European politics textbook now, mm -hmm. the European Union is a, an economic superpower and one of yes. our main geopolitical tools is market power. Yeah. And we leverage... In a military tool. Yes, that too, but <laughs> let's not talk about <laughs> this. Wait, 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 wait. I'll be very, very, very quick. Very, very quick. So, to be proper Brazilians, it's not strategic autonomy, it's open strategic autonomy. We oh, work come on this together. <laughs> okay, I start Thank off with you. a joke. All right. Uh, Paperology, President yeah. von der Leyen did say that this is going to be a geopolitical commission. I have to say, a lot of people laughed. A lot of people did not take this yes. claim seriously. Three years on, three and a half, three and something, whatever. Um, how much have we developed? The EU is providing lethal and non-lethal support as EU, not as member states, to Ukraine. We have the recovery and resilience uh, uh, facility. The European Critical Raw Materials Act, one of the key initiatives in the State of the Union address for this year. Update of the EU Maritime Security Strategy. Update the human rights sanctions regimes. A lot of things. A lot of things both in the pipeline and soon to be in, uh, in the pipeline. We should not be arrogant pretending that we know yep. what's best for everyone. We should know at least what we want. And I agree with you, certainly, but I, I no longer accept as, a, as an argument that the EU is not doing anything. Mm. No. If you say that, I, I have to say that you're not well, uh, well prepared because the strides, the steps we've made forward are incredible these past years and especially these past six months. And I hope that, and I will continue working towards this as a European citizen, just that we make more and more steps because... I, I think that uh, the current system, as it is, is uh, has, there needs to be some sort of changes. At what direction? I'm not the person that's going to decide. But as the president herself said in the State of the Union address, we need a, some sort of discussion amongst us, ourselves and all the stakeholders up and down and horizontally uh, to see where we can go from here. One of the suggestions you said, getting rid of unanimity... Again, I'm not the person that's going to decide, but I know for one thing that right now, as we are, we we need to change some things towards uh, to, to allow us, to enable us, and to unleash our yeah. ourselves to to be the best uh, the best version of the European Union that uh, that we can. Again, the people will uh, the, the stakeholders and the people involved will decide. But the geopolitical union is very much, I think, in its nascent. Yeah. Uh, stages and we need to keep uh, pushing for it because I think the next front of European integration is defense mm. for sure but we don't what, want to open I, that bucket I, right now not yet no. we're, we're yeah, running out of time yes, rapidly so like about, about this uh, because is that before we're trying to push for like uh, huge changes on top level I think 
the European Union could actually see to what he's proposing. And for instance, this tr strategic autonomy things and the, poli and the policy behind it, I mean, what do we actually want to achieve from this, whereas we want to actually maintain this globalization standard? You know, so it's difficult to uh, actually want to please, for instance, the, the electorate and uh, decoupling from the globalization, try to bring the supply chains here and have a more control of it. Whereas on the other hand, we still are basically fermenting business outside, you know. Mm. So, and on the other way around, like on simple matters, for instance, lithium uh, was considered a critical raw material for the, and it's important for sustainable mobility to, fur, to foster the, the, the batteries. It's a strategic thing for us. But nonetheless, a few weeks ago, the European Parliament was still discussing if we are going to ban or not lithium or consider it as a toxic element. Mm. So, what I'm, what I'm trying to tell here is like the European Union should, before making big changes, should try to understand what it stands, try to draft priorities and make it right and go further and search for the gold. Yeah, and I think on that note, we're wrapping up our substantive discussion here because we've, we've trailed <laughs> part on one. a little. Part, part one. one. I, I should have just based this all around a geopolitical Europe and we've gotten <laughs> really riled up here, but for next time. Episode two? <laughs> part two, you know. Part two, yeah. But just to round us out, if we're going to go around the table, what's one word you would use to describe September as a month for EU? And this should not be the hardest question in the podcast. Engaged. Engaged, okay. And I would say that it's been, we're testing the level of engagement that the EU has right now in Ukraine in several other domains, but we're also seeing the results of this engagement, yeah. particularly when it comes to defense matters, where the materials, no, we're going to discuss this. Is, <laughs> give me just this one point. We started seeing the equipment promised to Ukraine being delivered en masse in July and August and the beginning of September. And when it was in place, when HIMARS were in place in particular, and Ukraine was able to use them properly, that engagement paid off with the routing of Russian forces in Kharkiv and the crashing and burning of a lot of their ability in Kherson. And this is something that I think engagement is the my word of the month, personally. Okay. But I would say hectic from I, I every agree. perspective. Yeah. No, 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 from energy perspective, from again, from the, the Ukrainian advances, um, even from the changing tone in the, um, in the speech of the, the President von der Leyen, and of course, the, the Italian elections that mm -hmm. caught us like this, where we are now. Caution. Caution. Mm. Caution. Uh, we are, there are good things going for us. There are not so good things going for us. Um, on the way forward, we need to, to exercise uh, caution. There's, there's not a lot of room for, for error right now on either side, on every side rather. There is no two sides right here. And um, we need to reflect deeply uh, and ask ourselves some deeper uh, questions in the long term. But right now, every decision needs to be scrutinized uh, multiple times so that we know that it's, it's the best decision at every level for everything we do, even as people. Like uh, how many times you're going to put mm -hmm. the dishwasher or whether you're going to shower with warm water. So I think... Right now, we need going into the winter. Caution. Yeah, I think personally, I would go roll or something. Because I think this month, looking back into history books, it'll be very constructive to the role of what Europeans see themselves at, what European policymakers see themselves at, mm. and how it intersects in the world. Because even, I mean, going to the Hungary incident, we're actually taking stances. And 
that's something you want. That's something you think probably will never happen, but or hope will. No, it's something I hope it to happen. Yeah, but, but you said uh, one word, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 no, but I, I think it's just very promising that yeah. we are making strides in that sense. We are discovering a role in the world, and we are becoming maybe a geopolitical entity. But who knows? That's a provocation for the next season, for the next show. He's doing this on purpose at this point, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, talking of provocations for the next shows, I have to tell you a bit about the lineup coming up. Um, so next week, I should be releasing an episode on food security and agriculture with an EU focus, tail ending very nicely off the point Xiao brought up. Brought up. Um, and I might also be releasing that week an episode on uh, Irish, 50 years of Ireland in the EU and a bit of Irish perspectives on the EU. Um, but those will be the podcast format. And then... I don't know when we'll do another panel like this, but I've had a lot of great fun doing this. And I think it's been a very interesting discussion, especially towards the back end of this. So, mm-hmm. so thank you all for being on. Thank here. you for thank having thank us you. on. Thank, oh. thank you. Yes. Perfect. And I think we'll wrap it up here. Hey. Sounds good. Give yourselves a round of applause.